So welcome to the Bitcoin Worldview series. Uh, this is the second episode and uh, our topic now is asking the question, how do we know? Uh, Bitcoin is a communication protocol of distributed uh, decentralized databases. And then Bitcoin also has this slogan of don't trust verify. So in light of that, we can ask the question, is communication possible? And how, if at all, can we trust the knowledge that we acquire through our, our senses? And I will be presenting a practical approach to this topic and drawing metaphors uh, from how Bitcoin operates. We'll have ample time for questions and discussions when I'm done. But also, you know, feel free if you have a pressing question, you can just jump in while I'm sharing. I, I'm okay with a little um, chaos <laughs> with that. We can deal with that. Uh, we'll just keep this open and, and free. Uh, I do have uh, some slides I will share with you later on. But uh, before we do that, let's uh, start with this question that is part of the description. Uh, what is communication? And it is, is it possible? This is really one of my favorite questions. And it is actually closely related to the topic on knowledge. And it has more than meets the eye at, at first sight. So number one, at the basic level, communication is, is sharing and receiving data or knowledge. That's kind of obvious. Uh, as an example, when I started my little umbrella Bitcoin full note, it took weeks to work through all the Bitcoin transactions, starting with the first one from January 09. My connection was probably pretty slow because for most people, I think it takes less than a week. For, but for me, it took, I think, close to three weeks. Now, my umbrella note got this data from other full notes, literally bit by bit, you know, one by one, zero by zero, and then verifying each transaction before adding it to my copy of the Bitcoin database. So we can say this is communication or, or sharing of data in, in the Bitcoin world. A full note being uh, um, starting up and receiving all the data from the other nodes. And now my full note is part of that decentralized distributed network sharing and receiving uh, data. Now, when I build my worldview, I take in data, I receive data from others. And before I add it to my worldview, so to speak, if I'm doing a good job, I, I verify it. Similar as the, as the Bitcoin notes, you'd verify the transactions before they are added in. So that's kind of the metaphor here that, that as we are building our knowledge or building our worldview, we receive data and we verify it before we add it. That's the first point. Communication is sharing or receiving data or knowledge. And then the second point is this question, uh, if there is no absolute truth, 
is communication possible? And we talked about fixed truth or absolute truth uh, in our conversation with uh, Jimmy Song. And uh, my answer to this is no. Uh, if everything is relative, if there is no real knowledge, then our communication ends up being just like a meaningless game. If the knowledge that we are communicating is not real, then communication becomes meaningless because communication is just then handling something that doesn't have any meaning anyway. Um, feel free to push back on that, but that's, that's my answer to, to that. And then thirdly, uh, without communication, uh, building our personal knowledge would be hard or impossible. So my answer to this question uh, is communication possible is uh, a firm yes. I believe it's possible because we have fixed truth and because communication is uh, then dealing with real knowledge and real truth. Now for our purposes in the Bitcoin worldview series, uh, the implication of this is that those that are active in communication, active in in sharing and receiving, they are more likely than others to have a healthy and solid worldview. Just like if you take in the Bitcoin uh, worldview or Bitcoin world, a Bitcoin node that is uh, frequently disconnected and not communicating with the other nodes will at various times have a flawed copy or a copy that is not fully uh, a full copy of the Bitcoin database. Uh, just the same way, if we are not communicating much, not sharing and receiving, then I make the case that uh, our worldview may not be as healthy or, or full or solid. And this is one of the main reasons why I launched this Bitcoin worldview project to engage in this process and invite uh, others to join with me. So that was uh, talking about the question, is communication possible, which was mentioned in, in the introduction there. Uh, feel free to jump in on, in on that. Uh, otherwise, I'm moving on to talk about how does the Bitcoin protocol acquire and verify knowledge? And to do that, I am going to share my screen. Uh, let's figure that out here. Here we go. Welcome, Steven, by the way. Hey, thank you. Yeah, sorry, I'm a bit uh, tardy, I guess. Um, uh, you're but yeah, you're all be good. <laughs> you're all good. So uh, do you see my screen, guys? I do, yeah. Okay. So this is what we started with. This is the intro here. Uh, we already talked about that and we talked about the communication question. So uh, this is what we talk about when we talk about the decentralized data database uh, as opposed to a centralized database. I'm a software engineer and I work with databases pretty much every week of my life. And uh, all of them without exception have been centralized. 
those are efficient systems. Uh, we use them for sophisticated uh, business software. And uh, we've been using uh, languages to query those databases since, I don't know, I think SQL structured query language, which I use a lot, was got started back in 93 or 95. So it's been going on for almost uh, 30 years and still going strong. <laughs> so you see the difference there. You know, when you have a centralized database, uh, everything, you know, there's one source of truth in the center. And everything depends on, on that. When you have a decentralized database, all those nodes or machines are equal. There's not one of them that is more central central than, than another. Uh, now, when we think about that, uh, you know, I, I looked it up in January or early this year, they were estimating, Cointesk was estimating there are about 80,000 Bitcoin full nodes. I would say now, uh, towards the, the the fourth quarter of this year, there will be at least a hundred thousand, probably, probably two hundred thousand, because there's been a surge in running full nodes, especially after Elon Musk expressed doubts in July. He expressed doubts that the average person would be running a full node. So after that, everyone is posting on Twitter, hey, Elon, see my umbrella, you know, Raspberry Pi for running a full node. So uh, I don't know if he was using reverse psychology, but whatever he did, it worked. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and it's been, a, for me, it has been a great experience to run a full node on, on a little Raspberry Pi. Uh, it's, it's fun. So it's one of those full nodes keeps a record of all the Bitcoin transactions from the beginning. And all of them are continually communicating with about, or usually about 10 other nodes to receive and share updates. So they're always receiving and sharing all the time. And then the Bitcoin protocol uses a clever verification process so that all of these full nodes, 100K or 200K, know that their copy of the Bitcoin Bitcoin database is uh, accurate. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, this is an example or a picture, a simple picture of a blockchain. And uh, most of the, you have already studied that, but just for the point of conversation, uh, you will have these blocks you can think about like pages uh, in an actual spreadsheet. And each page or block uh, has a hash. And a hash is just like a fingerprint. You could take a large file or even a database and you can create a hash, which is uh, perhaps 16 characters that are unique. If you, if you change one thing in that file and rehash it, the fingerprint or the hash will change. And it's one way. You can go from the file to the hash but if you have the hash, you cannot go back to the file. So it's one way only. And it's fast and it's easy to verify if the hash is correct. So if I give you a hash and I claim that uh, I solved a mathematical uh, problem and I give you the hashing of the solution, you can then work on that problem 
And then you can hash your solution and verify if it's the same solution that I have, for example. And I will have proven that my solution was correct before looking at your solution. Uh, and then the second thing about hashes is that if you look at this picture, you will see there's a chain on the left from block two to block three to block five. And each block that follows a block will have, will store the hashing of the prior block. So this way they are all chained together. And that way you know that block three came after block two because otherwise it would not be possible for block three to store the hash of block number two. Now, if two full nodes disagree on what block should be in the database, uh, the longest chain will win. So if, if I hold the copy of the database with five blocks and uh, John has a copy that only has three blocks on his you know, version, the five block will win. Uh, John will drop his and adapt mine. Uh, that's the simple way to put it. The full node with a shorter block will drop his and adapt the longer blockchain. Now there's more to how Bitcoin works, obviously, and this is not a full description. I'm not talking about miners. I'm not going much detail, but for our metaphors and purposes, this is uh, this is helpful. And uh, we'll we'll see that come as, as, as I continue here. Now, as we've talked about how Bitcoin operates, let's talk a little bit about then switch and talk about how people acquire knowledge and, and share knowledge. So, uh, I'd like to make a distinction between gathering knowledge and verifying knowledge. Today, uh, we all know this, we are increasingly uh, dealing with an avalanche of information that is just washing over us wave after wave, okay? And uh, I think we now deal with more volume of information than any person in history before us. Obviously, we can control that a bit, uh, by how much media we we consume, but uh, you get the picture. And uh, I'd like to suggest a two-step approach to deal with this enormous volume of, of information and knowledge that comes our way. Uh, first, to think about what are the foundational things for us to know with a reasonable certainty or, or reasonable confidence. And those core things can operate like cornerstones in our building of worldview and knowledge. We should put more energy into verifying these cornerstones than uh, other items. So we give different weight to uh, the information that we, we receive. I would suggest, for example, that the topics that we are covering in this series Topics like, does fixed truth exist? How do we know? Uh, what's the basis of, a of our morality? 
etc. Those are some of the things that are cornerstones in a healthy, uh, mature worldview. Um, and obviously, before we use them as cornerstones to rigorously verify as 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 much as we can. So, uh, having said that, uh, let's uh, dive into how we acquire and gain knowledge. And uh, I suggest four ways we do that. You know, there are other ways you can you can split that up, but I suggest four. The first would be the simple observation and experiencing the world around us. Uh, for, for example, at a certain age, all of us, as a small child, we literally explore the world by tasting it. You know, small children will just go for a stone or a table and will taste the table. And that is their way of exploring and experiencing the world. And a scientific experiment is a form of experience. If I go and climb a tower and I drop stones and I drop a glass or, or some various items, my observation will tell me and I will gain the knowledge that optics fall at the same acceleration regardless of mass. So I'm, I'm counting that as observation or experience. That's number one. Number two would be just thinking. Uh, the classical examples are Plato, Socrates, and these guys. They were not much into exper experiments. They would, they would think, they would ask questions, and they would build their knowledge thinking from first principles. They would uh, set down these core axioms or, or first principles, and based on them, they would think about the world around them. The third way is reading or consuming media of different types. Um, you can potentially count that as ex experience, but I'm counting that as number three. And then number four, having conversations with others or in some ways receiving knowledge from another person. Uh, similar to reading, but, but this live conversation, I, I, I feel that uh, merits a category of its own. So that could be the friend next door, your teacher, or potentially a super person or a deity if, you know, if you're in that worldview, and you could then potentially call that a revelation. Something that uh, is shared with you, but not in the typical, uh, typical manner. And then um, how do we verify and evaluate our knowledge? Uh, I want to mention two things, evidence and the analogy of, or metaphor of the, of the Bitcoin blockchain works well here. You know, the blockchain with the longest chain wins. The blockchain with the most work behind it, most effort is the one that wins. Most energy, essentially, because its block is energy. Proof of work. And a similar way, as we build our worldview, uh, the longest chain of strong evidence should win compared to others. I believe, for example, that the, that er, the Earth is round because there is more and stronger evidence for that than the Earth being flat. 
with uh, respect to the flat earthers on the call. So um, that's the first way we, we evaluate dollars by evidence. The second way would be intuition or even just your gut feeling. You may disagree if that's an, uh, a valid evaluation, but let, let me give you an example. I don't know if you played chess, but an expert chess player, he may decide to sacrifice, sacrifice his knight for a pawn, even if he can't calculate to know with certainty or with confidence that it is a winning move. He will rely on his intuition. He trusts his intuition enough to act on it. And that's my kind of discernment if, if it's a valuation, if you're willing to act on it. Uh, and you, then you can play more with the comparison of how Bitcoin operates and how we humans work with knowledge. Um, like I said earlier, uh, a block of Bitcoin is like a piece of evidence. And if that's your metaphor, then mining a new Bitcoin block takes work, takes effort. Uh, the same goes for evidence. Solid evidence is something that usually requires some efforts of, on our behalf to get to put our fingers on, to get a hold on. And then number two, there's also a process to verify a Bitcoin block. Although it's more complicated, there's also a process to veri verify uh, a piece of evidence. We ask other people, we, we study books, etc. So if we do this comparison between Bitcoin and our human process of dealing with knowledge, number one, uh, in acquiring knowledge, we see that Bitcoin full nodes are continually communicating. They're both sharing and receiving. And as humans, a good approach is to continually communicate with others. And the advantage of that is that new evidence is continually being received and shared with others. And the evidence that you already ha have is being tested and you help others to test their evidence. So that's kind of the human example. Now, a bad way to, to deal with knowledge and deal with worldview from a human perspective, I would say is closing yourself off and not communicating. The mindset of saying, I know truth and I do not need to do any more listening or sharing. The result of that probably will be ignoring evidence that does really exist. And if you don't know about the evidence, then obviously it will not have any effect on your life because what you don't know doesn't really exist in your, in your, in your world, in your bubble. That's about acquiring knowledge. There's a second thing about verifying knowledge. Uh, that's the thing I said earlier, Bitcoin, the longest chain wins. And for us as humans, the longest chain of strong evidence should win. Once I learn of a longer chain, once I learn of a longer chain of evidence, I should drop my short chain and adapt the longer chain. 
Now, a bad way of doing that would be holding fast to the chain I have, ignoring or not knowing that the longer chain exists. So that may take a lot of courage, obviously, especially if, if those evidence chains are pointed to a, a, a cornerstone belief that uh, has a huge implication for one's life. All right. Uh, any questions or comments so far? Uh, I have a little bit more to share. All right, thumbs up. All right. So uh, let's ask this question then. Can we trust the knowledge that we verify? Okay. And obviously, the answer to that question depends on what we mean with trust. If my trust means a mathematical proof, like proving that 2 plus 2 equals 4, then the answer is probably no. Because the amount of knowledge that we can verify like that is very narrow. There's not much knowledge that you can verify with a proof like you can prove that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, so that would really limit the amount of knowledge that you can, you can have. But if by saying trust, you mean assuming a few axioms, like assuming that fixed truth exists, I can prove that fixed truth exists, but I have evidence for it and I can lay that as a cornerstone and then work my way from that. And if I do that, that enables me to trust knowledge built on that with enough reasonable confidence to act on it. So if that is the case, then I can trust the knowledge that I, I verify. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to borrow here then a phrase from uh, Dr. Michael Gillen, who... I had the, I've had the pleasure to work with uh, Addison also. Uh, he is uh, he has a PhD in uh, physics, astronomy, and math, and he recently published a book called "Believing Is Seeing." It's actually uh, on the top list of Amazon right now, and he's contrasting "believing is seeing" against "seeing is believing." Let me explain what he means. Uh, seeing is believing is, is the approach to only believe what you can see and touch and measure. Okay. Uh, and there are problems with that, I want to suggest. For example, uh, dark matter and dark energy make up about 95% of the entire universe. That means that 95% of the universe is completely invisible and out of reach for us. Uh, that means in essence that if we are gonna base our understanding about the world just on that 5% and actually just that fraction of the 5% that we can actually see with our telescopes, et cetera, that's a very, very narrow, narrow hole to look through. 
let me bring in a quote from a friend, Mike Brownot. He says, there's a branch of thought in science which says that you must remain agnostic about the reality of anything that cannot be observed directly with the unaided human senses. This means that you should have no opinion on the reality of atoms. You should have no opinion on the reality or otherwise of electrons or genes or your own brain or even your own children once they've left the room. Okay. So that's a hardcore seeing is believing. Uh, I also want to bring up here in this conversation the limits of logic because we, we sometimes overstress what we can do with logic and uh, that is kind of the camp of seeing is believing. If I can prove with logic that something exists or something is the case, people say that that's the proof. But, but the problem is that logic has boundaries and logic has um, limits. Kurt Friedrich uh, Gödel was a, uh, uh, he studied logic and he came up with the uh, incompleteness theorem. In very simple terms, he proved that if you have anything that is more complex than arithmetic, you will always have truths that you cannot prove. Let me repeat that. If you have something more complex than arithmetic, you know, plus, minus, you know, division, etc. If you have a statement that is more complex than that, there will always be things, axioms, that you have to have, but you cannot prove them. Otherwise, you know, if, if, you, if you don't have these things, you, you can't uh, prove or, or, or make a case that whatever you're stating is true. He's basically saying that logic, logic has limitations as for how complex a thesis it can deal with. That's really remarkable when, when you think about it, because um, that means that we are forced to use uh, methods beyond logic to go into areas that are more complex than arithmetic. Right. Now that was talking about seeing is believing. Let me let me talk about uh, believing is seeing, and and here we're we're approaching the end here. Believing is seeing, uh, as opposed to seeing is believing, means that when you say believing is seeing, it means that if our worldview is broad enough to believe or have faith in things that can't be seen or may even defy our everyday experience, if that is the case, we can see much more of the universe around us. And we can do that with reasonable reliability because it is consistent with the best available evidence, be it solid or ambiguous. So, so you have some evidence, but you can't prove it. 
with math or anything like that. You gather the evidence. Um, Augustine was uh, an old church uh, saint here, and he said this, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, do not seek to understand in order to believe, but believe that you may understand. That sounds strange at first, but when you think about it, he's really saying that unless you believe some axioms that you can't prove, you will never be able to reach the understanding beyond those axioms. So the axioms operate like a gateway into a building, and you cannot explore the rooms in that building if you're not willing to accept the axioms or, or basic principles. Another guy, Werner Heisenberg, said, not only is the universe stranger than we think, it is stranger than we can think. Now, that's an interesting statement. He's saying that the, the universe is stranger than we can think. And he's, he seems to be saying that our thinking will lack the capacity to, to understand the strangeness of the universe. Um, let, me, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, to go from uh, ground level up to the 20th floor of a, of a tall building, you need to take the elevator or climb the stairs. Even Superman or Superwoman would need to at least cover the distance. Okay, even if Superman could skip the elevator. Okay, so an atom is like a skyscraper with many floors. And according to quantum physics, electrons, they can and they do go from one floor to another without traversing the floors in between. Quite literally, they dematerialize from one floor and instantaneously rematerialize on another. Okay, so I have never seen this happen, but based on the authority of the scientific community who are able to measure this, I believe this is true. This defies my everyday experience because if you move something in everyday experience, it needs to travel the distance. But I personally believe this is true, that, that atoms operate like this. Okay because there's evidence for it. Let me give you one, one more example. Uh, it ties into communication. Have you heard about quantum entanglement? Okay, so quantum entanglement, uh, when you think about communication, usually it takes time to deliver a message from A to B. Even if we are having this conversation now over Zoom, I know that my voice, there's a, there's a latency on my voice being delivered to your ear, even if it's amazingly fast. But this latency doesn't necessarily exist in, in the world of quantum mechanics or quantum, sorry, quantum uh, physics. For instance, uh, an electron uh, will, will have a spin on it either clockwise or counterclockwise. 
let's suppose that two electrons uh, come from the same atom and they fly apart like twins separated at birth and each of them with a certain spin. If you measure the spin of one electron, that will instantaneously affect the spin of the other. It's like they have this telepathic communication. If you measure one of them and you affect the spin, the other one will, at the same time, without any latency, show the same change in spin. And this is called quantum entanglement. It has been shown by many experiments. In one recent study at the University of Science and Technology of China in Hefei, they were able to have them separated by 746 miles, but they were still able to communicate with one another instantaneously. That's mind-blowing. No latency, 746 miles. So in theory, where my mind goes with that is that if you take one of those electrons to the known end, one end of the known universe, and the other to the other end of the known universe, in theory, you would be able to communicate or morse between the whole universe without any latency instantaneously. That defies my normal everyday experience, but yet you can buy a thousand dollar kit and you can, you can do this experiment. And there are many, many other examples that defy our normal everyday experience, but for science, it's normal stuff, really that they have been using and, and measuring and working with for, for decades. So that kind of brings me to my, my conclusion um, that if we are going to limit ourselves with just what we can touch and measure, our knowledge volume is very narrow and doesn't seem to reflect the world we live in. And the, if I bring it back to the, the question I started with, uh, how do we know? Uh, we know by not demanding that we can prove everything like we prove 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we open up our world for things that may look different than our normal everyday experience, as long as we rigorously verify and look at the evidence that is available to us. Uh, and with that, we can build our worldview if we have the courage to, to follow the evidence where it leads. So let me pause here and we're gonna switch to uh, questions and conversations. Thank you for being great audience. Um, hi, Mr. Mr. Farrell, good to see you. Uh, so this, what do you guys say? Uh, any questions, comments? Dr. Farrell, I'm kind of curious, uh, what do you think about these really strange findings in quantum mechanics that uh, August is mentioning? Those, those are really kind of, I don't know, violated the logic intuitions I have about things. Yeah. I don't know how do, how do you square those findings with like your everyday sense of like logic you know like surely if something goes from A to B it's got to cross the distance between you know 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm not sure I can. <laughs> to be frank, <laughs> yeah. It, uh, like August said, it defies any normal experience. Um, even any of the strangest experiences I've had, it defies all of those too. Uh, yeah. I I honestly don't know a whole lot about quantum entanglement. I've heard the term. I've heard heard that before from someone else, but um, I haven't. It's not something that I've studied or looked into. It is fascinating. It almost begs the question of, is there a, is there a higher dimension that, that is sort of in and through everything um, where there are connections that we have no way of accessing, or maybe we do, but we just don't know how to. Um, we don't know how to measure it yet. Or is it some function of the way we're measuring the uh, the response of the electron that is kind of almost causes a glitch glitches out reality in some way i don't know i I'd, I'd be curious to really look in fact i'm yeah. kind of inspired now to look further into it um because i i had heard it before but it's something that i kind of forgotten and let go of but yeah that's really fascinating yeah i know there are like kind of like two overall camps that you know you can have about cases like that one one person can think that the uh the findings that we have in these experiments are certainly paradoxical but the contradiction is only seeming somehow you know there's only a contradiction because you know it's argue these people would argue because uh our measurements you know are equipment and it's not picking up everything. And if we really did have a full understanding of what's happening, we would see that this isn't a violation of logic. But then you have the other camp, which would say, you know, maybe this is a genuine case where uh, our everyday rules of logic seem to not apply. And those people could be people who think that nonetheless, those rules are pretty dang reliable and only fringe cases like these, you know, or they might uh, be even more cynical towards logic and might think that cases like this damage our ability to rely on it even more than just, you know, a few fringe cases. So yeah, I don't, I don't know quite where I land between those two camps, to be honest. Yeah. I think you can see even similar cases like that on a, I guess on a longer time scale, you, there is some there is some lag time, but you can see cases like that among collections of living things, where there is this communication that seems to be happening that's not something we understand in any way. Um, like uh, if you've ever seen a flock of starlings flying and notice their movements and their choreography. Uh, there's, I don't know how, how you really explain how, how, how they move the way that they do. I mean, much less why the way, why they move that way. That's out of the, you know, that's a whole nother question, but, but how they even choreograph themselves with seemingly what seems like does I mean, they're not even making a whole lot of noise when they're doing that. Um, or even, Honestly, 
looking at ants and bees, you know, these animals that have massive communities, but are able to build something beautiful, which to us seems like you'd need to have some kind of plan ahead of time, almost a, a look into the future, like here's the consequences of these actions and here's our here's our kind of our trajectory. We're all going to follow that. But, you know, logic would tell us there is no plan, um, but yet the thing emerges and it's able to operate and it's able to, to flourish. Um, so there must be some kind of communication happening and, and also almost like a, an epi intelligence that, that sits above the individual. So I don't know. It's, it's all so fascinating to me. I think uh, it's a helpful conversation because uh, at least today and like here in Iceland uh, for young people, uh, there's a lot of assuming that what you see is what you get, you know, uh, what you measure is what you get. And, and uh, you don't need to talk long about the examples that you brought up just now or some of them that I, I brought up to realize that there is a vast amount of knowledge and and truths out there which you can't prove you know you can't prove it at least not with the methods and the approach process that that we have now so that leaves us with the question okay am i going to uh deny that this is true or am i going to up, upgrade my worldview and say if i have evidence for it if i see the ants if i see the birds if i can measure the quantum entanglement it does exist uh, even if i can't work out the mechanics or if i can't prove it and once you settle that, then like I hinted at in, in my section there, then the distance between science and, and faith has just gotten much, much shorter. You know? And uh, I agree with Dr. Gillen when he points out in his book that really both science and religion are operating on faith, where faith is certain axioms that you put down which you cannot prove yeah one thing that um that kind of strikes me about these cases uh that seem to be um you know kind of flouting logic a little bit um to, to me they, they would actually almost be a I, I don't know. I, I don't think someone who is only relying on if if someone's only relying on the unaided senses, you're right that uh, they would have a hard time believing these things. But um, people who are kind of drawn to those positions usually don't wouldn't limit themselves to just the unaided senses. There's a view called, and it it kind of had its heyday a while ago. It's not very popular anymore, and uh, for a number of reasons, logical positivism, which you may have come across. And it's basically the view that uh, the only 
claims that have meaning are ones that can be empirically uh, falsified. So if, if a claim, there's no way to falsify a claim empirically, then that claim doesn't have any meaning is what they would say. And uh, so that's very much kind of like a technical way of basically saying, if you can't measure it, it doesn't even make sense what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, that view has certainly a number of problems, but I don't think someone who has that view would have much issue with these puzzling findings in quantum mechanics. I think they would see those and be like, well, we can empirically measure it, so it does have meaning. I think, if anything, those cases would actually be a threat to people like us who want to say that we can rely on logic without always empirical, you know, without more sentences have meaning than just ones that can be empirically verified. Um, yeah, I think actually that would be a, more of a problem for us than for them. I don't know. <laughs> mm. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, some of the simple metaphors that I drew from how Bitcoin operates and how we operate in gathering and verifying knowledge? Uh, do you find that helpful or, or what do you think? I like the lecture, uh, longest block, proof of work, following the, the chain of evidence. So I did a study once um, asking people about three questions. I did a three question test. You know, what are, do you believe that um, it's important to have evidence for your belief system? People said, yes, I wouldn't believe someone without evidence. Number two, uh, what is your most deeply held belief? And number three, what evidence do you have to support that? And inevitably, when you took people on that path, they began to go, oh my God, yeah. They had number two was not supported by number three a lot of times. So, it just it is interesting how we think we like to think we're all evidence-based and we think a certain way but there are certain things that we just don't have evidence for that we hold to you know like there's some truths that are just um self-evident the founders would say we hold these truths to be self-evident all men are created equal so there's no empirical method to measure you know net worth or bench press we're not we're not measuring that but yet we hold inherently that all people are created of equal value and worth and dignity uh, and so to uphold human rights is to uphold some kind of axiom that we just can't prove you know um so i think it's interesting but but in some areas that you can prove it, it is helpful to have based on your experience observation what has that longer chain uh, so if you thought it was one thing but there's more evidence in another area then even though you may not be able to prove it if it's 60% this answer, 40% that answer, then without a reasonable doubt, I'm gonna say this guy committed the murder, you know, based on the evidence that was presented to me. And so I'm never gonna be 100% sure, but I'm more leaning towards it based on what I see than what I, what I have questions about. So, but, you know, we like to think we need 100% certainty, but most, most of life we don't have 100% certainty in that way of a mathematical proof that people think about. So I think it, it is pretty, it is pretty helpful for people to understand the whole trust and proof and faith to really get that clear to realize that religion and science both are operating at some degree on faith axioms they can't prove and once you see that it does change the way you begin to uh or it helps to remove a little bit of self-deception that people have which is why i think the whole bitcoin discussion has been helpful for many people because they think 
they operate without fixed truth, for instance, and then they come to Bitcoin and suddenly they see some fixed truth and they start seeing certain principles that line up with reality that don't really fit with post-modernity. And then suddenly it causes them to start questioning the other beliefs they have. And they start down this rabbit hole of, uh, you know, of all this, all this questioning, which I think is helpful and good, but many people just don't, they don't. And there was a Blaise Pascal that said that part of the problem in the world is we don't sit alone and think enough so don't really think about what we believe and so if you do you start to uncover a lot of uh, a lot of things that we just don't we don't we don't think about we just watch media and go on with our lives and bitcoin for many has forced them to start thinking at a deeper level it, do you guys agree that uh you know when i was sharing earlier i i said that one communication is possible and uh, that you can verify and have real knowledge that's kind of where i landed do all you agree with that or, or what what's your summary on that yeah i think uh i mean those all sound pretty reasonable claims to me yeah. um yeah, I, I think I might be a little bit more pessimistic, though, about the things with which we can be certain about. Um, I share your conclusion that even if we can't be certain about something, that doesn't mean we can't know it to, one, a very high degree of confidence, and two, that high degree of confidence is enough for, to count as knowledge. But um, I'm not even too sure that mathematical, like very basic mathematical proofs, like in arithmetic, um, can 100, you know, would be certain because it kind of depends on what you mean by numbers. You know, there's a debate in philosophy about whether or not numbers really exist. Do mathematicians discover things or invent things? Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm even 100% sure about 2 plus 2 equaling 4. Now, if you, or I should say, if you hold all the axioms of basic arithmetic, then yeah, then you can know. But but that's kind of the point. The axioms themselves have to be assumed. Yeah. But then again, you know, if, if, yeah, go ahead. As I say, it's kind of where post-modernity kind of defeats itself. You know, it's like mm -hmm. we're communicating right now. You know, is communication possible? Well, let me give you my opinion. Well, it's like, well, am I communicating my opinion or am I not? So it's like, how do we say communication is impossible and communicate that? So it's like, we're either communicating or we're not communicating. So it's like, we can say we're not communicating. And yet, if you're communicating that you can't communicate, then you just defeated it. You know, so it's it's interesting how, uh, yeah, how that can be so self-defeating that there is some level of, as you said, Stephen, you have to accept, you have to accept those axioms like, uh, is it Euclidean geometry? You know, you have to accept that there's a dimensionless point. There's a there's a line that exists without a plane. You have to just if you accept all those axioms, then man, you can do geometry. It's amazing, and you get all the benefits of it. But if you reject it, I don't think two plus two equals four. Okay, well then you'll never have the benefit of knowing how to add how many children you have or how much money is in your bank account if you reject numbers. You have to kind of accept by faith these numbers that were invented or discovered or whatever in order to enjoy the benefits of mathematics and begin to explain the universe and whatnot. So it's this weird thing of, we want the certainty, but we realize we have to, we have to just assume the axioms 
And if we do, if we believe them, as Dr. G says, then we can we can really begin to uh, the believing is seeing. Now we begin to see the whole world begins to open up to us if we start with uh, those axioms. Yeah, it's uh, when when you were talking, Stephen. Uh, I it's refreshing to hear your take on some of those. Uh, because what, what I hear from you is that you want to narrow down um, the metaphysical. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. You, yeah. Um, but but doing that, and I, I know you agree with me on that, it is a narrow road. Because if you go too far in that, you are really sawing off the, the limb that you're, that you're standing on. Because if you use... Uh, advanced uh, metaphysical and philosophical statements to show why metaphysical truths uh, don't exist, then, <laughs> then your, you know, the, the pipeline <laughs> you're operating on gets gets quite narrow there. So it's it's a fine yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. There's there's all kinds of um, kind of ironic places you can wind up if you take the project to the extreme of limiting the number of things you either assume or. Uh, yeah, yeah, because, you know, quite humorously, you can end up in a place where being very conservative about the things that you assume, and by conservative, I mean only, you know, limiting as much as, you know, you possibly can the number of things you're willing to assume. Mm -hmm. Well, that motivation that someone would have would probably be based in part on some assumptions, like the fewer number of assumptions I have, the safest you know, or, or the least likely I am to be misled. Well, that, that itself might be an assumption, you know, like, so, so I guess like just the overall desire to have the least amount of axioms as one needs, that in and itself might require a few axioms, which, mm -hmm. you know, you can, yeah, you can. Yeah, good, yeah, well, well said. If we switch gears a little bit, one of the things I was talking about was good ways of building a worldview and, and bad ways of building a worldview. And I was, I was making the case that a person that is neglecting to communicate with others or kind of closing him or herself off will be more likely to have a bad worldview than the person that is more open and rigorous and then verifying evidence. Uh, does do you agree with that uh, or, or that conclusion that I, that I made? Or do you have any thoughts on that? I 100% agree with that statement. Um, yeah, I mean, the more you squeeze a person or a group of people and censor what they can and can't expose themselves to, or even talk about amongst themselves. Yeah, the constellation of ideas becomes very, uh, very minimal, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as bright, it's not as beautiful. Um, there's, not, there's not the opportunity to explore what connects somebody to, to life um, uh, because everybody's different in that way. And and yeah, truth becomes just uh, very limited to to that that very small view, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, I, I certainly have seen that in my life, 
and seeing what I was exposed to growing up versus what I found out later in life and wish I was exposed to earlier in life and wouldn't have to do so much dusting off and kind of uh, disentangling myself from, from some of those old ideas. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough because I mean, without the tools of weighing the evidence, which I think is, is absolutely important if you're going to expose somebody to all this, all these different ideas and say, you know, you go, you go figure it out for yourself for a little while. Um, then you also need to expose that person to the tools for weighing the evidence, right? Because otherwise then people are not grounded in anything and, 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 and any wave that comes along can just blow them off the rocker. And, and so there must be some foundational, um, kind of anchors uh, to, to hold people and, and, and make it less likely that they're going to, you know, wash this way or that. As we've seen in the U.S. over the last year and a half, it doesn't take a whole lot of bad press and misinformation to convince some people that this is true or that's true or that's false. Um, but keeping all avenues open and then and then looking at the evidence for each one and saying, you know, well, um, I, I don't know, which we're terrible at doing in the US saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know, but here's, here's, uh, here's my best guess at this point, based on the evidence that we have. Um, and I think the voices that were, that were pronouncing that those narratives earlier on, at least in the COVID thing, um, uh, were much more easily able to, to shift their perspective when new evidence came out. Uh, and it wasn't so shocking to everybody. But um, yeah, I, I am definitely for the least amount of censorship so far as it doesn't cause damage or suffering to people, um, which, which obviously some ideas can, I think, um, but those which don't, then, um, yeah, let them out. Yeah. That's actually, uh, uh, something that would be very interesting to spend some more talking, of, talking about, uh, even the correlation between uh, the level of people's ability to think, uh, because I, I would suggest that as people's ability to think critically goes down, you may need to increase uh, what is being shared with them because they will just grab anything and, and run with it without thinking critically about it. You know, so so uh, more and more information becomes. Uh, dangerous for them because they are not able to responsibly uh, deal with it. Um, uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you guys about is um, yeah, uh, as for Bitcoin, if you go back to that a little bit, one of the things I found really interesting about Bitcoin is that I've heard from a lot of people, both here in Iceland and abroad, that as they have been studying Bitcoin, their essentially their worldview has changed, and they are thinking more critically about the world. 
and uh, their time preference, for example, has changed. They are much, they think much more long term than before. And uh, I am fascinating how a piece of software which <laughs> is speeds, so to speak, uh, information, uh, how that is impacting literally millions around the world in how they think. Um, so I was just curious if you guys have any 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 thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. To be honest, this is like a little bit of um, kind of a new thing to stumble on. For me, you know, I've known about Bitcoin for a while, and I've been a little bit of a amateur philosophy nerd for a while too. Um, but when I first encountered like uh, this intersection between kind of like um, uh, Bitcoin and I, I don't want to call it self-help because that sounds almost like not good. At, like, you know, it's, it's deeper than just self-help too, you know, too. There's, there's some real like kind of philosophy going on there too. Anyways. Yeah. I was almost, kind of, it almost kind of struck me weird. Like it seemed like these two opposite worlds, you know, this software, related, you know, cryptocurrency, and then I almost thought they're kind of different, but it's been really interesting seeing the overlap, and I can kind of see why, because um, there are a few analogous things to Bitcoin that one could make in epistemology and and things like that, so. Yeah, thank you. I was just going to say, August, it feels like... Um, most people don't really understand Bitcoin until they understand the current monetary system. So, you know, like a lot of books and blogs, they try to teach you Bitcoin. They try to say, look, here's how the Fed works, central banks work, the current monetary system works. So that once you can see how it's dysfunctional, how it's broken, then you go, oh my gosh, Bitcoin it can help go a long way towards alleviating that or fixing that or putting us back in the right direction with sound money. So, but I think the revelation begins, this is my opinion, I think that people realize they've been lied to about money, that they want you to be confused about it, not understand it. Um, and so, you, you know, if you're going to learn a certain thing in the, in the university setting, the teachers will teach you a certain thing and the banks will pay the professor to teach something. And so you kind of self-perpetuate to make sure people are all confused and, and don't really question things. They just accept you need a little bit of inflation every year. It's just how the economy works. And they don't really understand sound money. But once they realize that, they go, wow, Bitcoin's amazing. They, they, they think, wait a minute, if I've been lied to about money, either lied to or, or you know, if you don't want to go that extreme, you just say, well, I've been misinformed or I just, I just didn't know. What else have I been lied to? Or what else have I not really thought critically enough about, you know, religion maybe or food or big pharma or they just start going all kinds of directions beginning to say, I'm going to start applying this new critical thinking I've learned and I'm going to start applying it to other areas. And then they start to begin to realize how many way, how many other areas you're getting uh, misinformation. You're getting, you know, as Robert Breedlove calls it, noise among the signal. You know, it's like uh, 
and money, bad money messes a lot of that up. You know, um, I think about China where they, everybody puts like 70% of the comp- country puts their, their store of value in real estate. And so if everybody's putting their money in real estate, everybody, they, people will invest ahead of time before a home's even built. And so you would think, man, must be a lot of people moving to China, must be a lot of babies happening, must be a lot of growth. And so you just keep doing it. And pretty soon you build out like that company Evergrande, you have 1.7 million properties that are empty or partially finished with no one to move into it just because people think because the, the signal they're getting is really a bunch of noise saying, oh, real estate is booming here. That's where I should invest. That's where I invest because we have a centrally planned economy where, where people think I know it all. But it, it did not, it did, not having a free market, letting people actually move and say, I want a house and bid the prices up. Then you'd have a real accurate, you'd know whether or not was it a real signal that the housing market needs to needs to grow, or was that noise? And so as a result, you have this huge misallocation of capital where Evergrande goes bust and all these properties sit empty. And they remember last month they they blew up 15 high rises uh, that had sat empty for eight years or more. So you just have all this wasted stuff. So we always think that we know better, and like we they, they don't know what they're doing. There's a lot of politics that way, right? You guys know what you're doing. We're smart. We'll tell you what to think. We'll, we'll essentially plan everything instead of letting the market itself dictate uh, what kind of, you know, having states pick health policies or education policies and kind of see the best one win, the best ideas. I don't know. We want one idea, whether it's tested or not, we'll push it from the top. Everybody has to do this idea. And then we don't know. We, we lose our control group. We don't know if it was bad or good, you know. But if you allow more of that free market, you begin to see, you know what, that state did a better job here, the state did a better job here, this university did a better job here. And certain ones will get money, will get enrollment, will get people moving to their state, get people buying their com- in their company. And you'll see, you know, those, those kind of booms and busts kind of flattened. But there's just too much central planning going on uh, in a lot of different sectors where we think we're doing it for the good of the people who don't know any better and don't have time to think about it. But I think what it does, is it creates a lot of noise and a lot of booms and busts and a lot of misallocation and misinformation and people, uh, ironically, through the Internet, which can be a source for truth and misinformation, uh, is helping helping people to see, uh, you know, what they're not exposed to. Obviously, you have social media stuff where it keeps feeding you in your own little bubble. And so you just never know. But if you get into a, a truly decentralized information bubble where you're constantly having opposing ideas to refine what you think, and then now you have more confidence going, okay, it's not just that I thought about Bitcoin, but I looked at all the alternatives. I looked at gold, I looked at fiat. I go, you know, when I look, when I look at alternatives, Bitcoin looks pretty good to me. That's If I had to put money, that's where I'm going to put my money. So the same way I think about, you think about faith, you think about worldviews. Is this worldview true? Does it answer everything? It answers a lot. Well, let me compare it to you know five other major worldviews in the world. And then you start looking, you go, man, when I compare it to other worldviews, this one looks a lot better than I thought individually when I looked at it, just because what are the alternatives? What best corresponds to that reality that we see? Yeah, I'll echo, um, I'll echo Addison as well uh, in saying that the, the thing that, I mean, personally, I didn't know much about the financial markets, and I still don't. It's very confusing to me. Our architecture of the way money is is oriented and the way that it is um, spread out across our economy is very confusing. Um, but I have educated myself more since I've become privy to 
the cryptocurrency world. And, and yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how what seems like the, the powers that be, the big banks and the governments are, you know, um, critical of, of the cryptocurrency ecosystem as being scammy and as being unstable, which there's some merit to that because there are going to be scams and instability anytime there's something new that emerges, um, people are going to take advantage of, of other people. But what's very interesting is that this kind of taking advantage of people has been going on for decades in the, in the large banking. So you just don't hear about it because it's conversations that are behind closed doors. And, and occasionally, you know, we'll get a leak here or there that will sort of expose the, the beast that lies in there um, of how, how corrupt some of these systems are. Um, you know, I don't think anybody, well, maybe somebody knows. I want to meet that person, the one who knows, who's seen the beast in full, you know, <laughs> like who's, who's the, who's the person to go to who kind of like has seen like all the kind of just knows what's going on. Okay. These pieces are moving over here and those pieces are moving that this is why that's happening. Um, I think that'd be a fascinating bit of knowledge to have, but, um, and maybe a little bit scary too, but yeah, I, I think that that I've been, I have educated myself on things that I never would have before jumping into this world. And also like you do have those opposing ideas that come to a head. Um, and it's nice to, to, to expose yourself to that. Like I know personally, I, I get on Reddit quite a lot and, you know, there's a sub, the cryptocurrency sub and, you know, you people can bash, bash that sub. But what's interesting is that the people who are on there will bash the sub themselves. And it's nice to see that, that there's a, there are, is a, there are critical eyes that are operating within this community of people who are willing to criticize themselves and the way that things run in this thing. And I think you need that. You can't be so sure of yourself and sure of your ideas. If it's got to be that voice that's in the corner that's saying, well, I don't know. So I don't know about this. You know, here, here's an alternative explanation. Here's an alternative idea. I want you to think about this. And I think that for me, at least, I, I find those posts and those comments reassuring like, hey, these people are actually thinking with an open mind about this whole thing and trying, trying to move things forward in this ecosystem and try to make things better, but at the same time, realizing the limitations that are there. And um, that's something that I've found refreshing in this community that you don't see in, in a lot of places that are just kind of tooting their own horn the whole time. Well said, well said. Uh, Addison was was putting out there bitcoin needs better critics and i i think that's a that's a great uh, great point um i want to point out that uh just like you're you were saying um uh and i will often say this uh, uh the idea uh, is to express and communicate our, our ideas about the world freely. Uh, communicate, debate the evidence, and, and then 
the hope is that the best idea wins. You know, this is kind of the open source mentality, the free expression, the free market and expression of code, the free market and expression of speech and ideas, right? And that seems to work well for us humans. If we let the, you know, we let the ideas compete for what, what works best. So, uh, so uh, I just want to point that out, that there are real similarities there between free speech, the debating of ideas in our communities, open source, which Bitcoin is. Anyone can download the source code, try this out. So it really is a seamless connection there between these things. Uh, and then, you know, people have been hammering and going after Bitcoin from January 09, actually before. I'm reading the book of Satoshi now, everything that Satoshi wrote, and people are on the threads where he's communicating, asking him questions, you know, what about this? How does this work? Is this a hole? Is this a weakness? And they're debating it back and forth. The very same thing that we're talking about here about worldview and ideas. In community, you work out what works best, you know. And, and that really is what we're doing with this Bitcoin worldview project. We, we want to come together and talk and have the conversation. And uh, that way our thinking gets stronger and the best idea hopefully wins. Another thing I'm going to pick up from what you said, Addison, is that you were talking about being self-sovereign and you were talking about critical thinking. And I think there's a connection there that if you learn to be self-sovereign, if you build that, it will build your critical thinking because you, you go into the mentality of not blindly accepting just anything or being dependent on the state or being dependent on someone else really taking responsibility for your life. You step into being responsible for your life and for your thinking, and, and that's critical thinking. So I, I, I see Bitcoin building that because one of the big things that Bitcoin is advocating for is this idea to be self-sovereign. You know, I can run my little Raspberry Pi here in, in my basement, and with that little thing, I can send mon you know, money, I can send value across, across the earth, and nobody can stop me and nobody can take it away from me. So that's being self-sovereign. Um, okay, uh, any comments on that? Otherwise, we're, we're going to start wrapping this up here soon, but I want to give room if there are any additional comments, questions, uh, etc. Uh, one quick thing is I actually really enjoyed um, Addison's thing about the three questions. The um, Yeah, you know, should we base our beliefs on evidence? You know, what's your most cherished beliefs? What's your evidence? Yeah, I thought that was... Yeah, it's kind of a cool, concise way to to get across that message and need to have reasons for belief. I thought that was really cool. You're muted. You're muted, August. I can't hear August. I don't know if you can. Yeah, I can't hear. Yeah, I can't hear you, August. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Uh Thank you, Stephen. That's that's great. Yeah. We might pick you up on that and just have an episode just on that. That's that's. I was uh, I enjoyed that also, Edison. That's that's a great short uh, way of of starting a conversation. 
I got that from a professor. So for a reason and faith class, and I had to go interview people with those questions. It was, it was quite enlightening. Yeah. What uh, I'm just curious, Addison, what kinds of, do you have any memorable interactions with people to stand out? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, the biggest one that stood out to me was when I recorded, it's like an hour and a half long that I asked the guy for permission to record it. Uh, but it was a guy who was the president of a Muslim student association at the uh, campus here locally. And uh, I asked him what is, you know, evidence. He was all about evidence, you know, this and that. I think it was a computer science major or something. And then the second thing I said, what was your biggest beliefs? And he, he said, I'm Muslim. So I went through the five pillars and I asked, you know, what, what those were. He explained them all. And then I asked him what evidence he had for that. And he simply said, oh, well, you know, the Quran. And I said, well, uh, uh, and I just kind of played, you know, idiot. I said, well, I don't understand what do you mean Quran. That's the book. I go, okay, okay. So but for the Quran, how do you know you can trust the Quran? How do you, what evidence do you have that that's true? You know, did he write it when he was alive? Well, no, somebody else wrote it. When did they write it? Oh, hundreds of years later? Well, how do you know they wrote what he said? And then he was just shaking. He was like, man, I don't want to believe a lie. And he said, I'm going to have to ask my dad because uh, my dad's real smart on this. But I, he just was, he started visibly shaking. He was like, man, I, I do not want to believe a lie. And he was just like thanking me. Thank you so much for this conversation. And he started asking me questions about uh, my faith and, you know, evidence for Christianity. And I just thought it was pretty interesting that that approach opened him up. And he was like, man, I really enjoyed this conversation. I never really talked to a Christian before. We talk about him, never talked to them. And I said, yeah, I can talk all day. So we just went for an hour and a half. It was supposed to be like a quick 15-minute little exercise. And uh, but it was just amazing how much it opened him up and how much it really planted a kind of inception, you know, planted that seed in there that uh, I'm just trusting to cause him to go down a rabbit hole. Hmm. Wow. What, yeah, that's really fascinating. To me, what's fascinating is it seems like he had never considered those questions before. Well, you're not allowed yeah. to consider them. In his, in his faith, if you question, you know, the leader is like right. apostate, you can't do it. Right. Wow. That's why you have to have a world, you have to have a worldview that says, I think earlier uh, Stephen mentioned this about like Karl Popper falsification, you know, like if, if Paul says, you know, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is not true. So, so it's the only faith that says, if this didn't happen, it's not true. So it puts all the, all in, puts all the money on the table, like a Texas Hold'em poker, you know, if this didn't happen, it's not true. And so it gives a, a place in which you can kind of falsify the faith. And other things don't, don't really do that. So it's just an interesting, um, yeah, interesting dynamic. It's an excellent conversation. Um, I've had several of these conversations with young people here in Iceland, and uh, that's actually one of the things that has surprised me. If you if you approach it the right way, I've you know people will thank me, and they will appreciate the conversation if you, if you gently ask the question and you and you talk about talk about evidence because people most people really do want to build their worldview on evidence they mm -hmm. just often haven't made the connection it seems so um it would be interesting to uh hear uh, of those that will listen to this podcast uh if they have any feedback on that if they've given thought to the evidence that they they build their worldview on because we all have some worldview even if we've put it into on paper or put, put it into words or, or not uh, and we all live in this same world we live on this earth and our worldview is basically how we interpret 
the world around us. So uh, we are going to wrap this up. Thank you uh, for the conversation, guys, and engaging with me on this topic. I really appreciate that. We are having uh, Dr. Gabe out joining us for our next session two weeks from now. That will be October 26 at the same time. Uh, the topic uh, title is Math Behind the Matter. And the description is uh, those that dive into Bitcoin are usually surprised to discover how deep and far-reaching implications it has on human life and environment. Bitcoin is software, information, math, and cryptology. And yet it is already starting to describe a new and updated physical future for human flourishing. Surprisingly, math is effective in describing and predicting developments in our physical world. Why is that? Why does math work? So we continue to really be close to uh, what you were mentioning, Stephen, about meta metaphysics, you know, because obviously numbers are information, metaphysics. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hear uh, Gabe's uh, take on this. And uh, hopefully you can join me for, for conversations and Q&A. So thank you all. Hopefully see you next time.